I think the future of supply chain will look more regional. What I mentioned before, I think we entered an area of de-globalization, which is here to stay, and that you have more clusters around the globe and you have these micro supply chains, which will be built up. Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. My name is Sinto. I'm a marketer, blogger, and supply chain podcaster here at SAP. In today's episode, I have Uwe Heitzmann as my guest, And we'll talk about the impact of the upcoming Golden Week in China on the economy and supply chain. So welcome, Uwe. And thank you so much for joining me today. Could you please take a moment to introduce yourself and give some insight into your role? Yeah, thank you very much, Sin, for having me today. Um, great pleasure to be on this podcast. My name is Uwe Heitzmann. I'm originally from Germany, but I have been working and living in China the last 23 years was based in Shanghai for EAC. EAC is an international consulting company. We help our clients mainly in China and the rest of Asia when it comes to strategy, but also to the entire supply chain topics. And I personally relocated back to our Munich operations last year, and now helping, let's say, our clients out of the Munich headquarter. So the so-called Golden Week in China is just around the corner. And uh, since China is still one of the largest exporting countries, this also affects trade. Well, to get a sense for how much is traded with China, let us start with some statistical figures. In 2022, according to the German Federal Statistical Office, goods worth approximately 298.9 billion euros were traded between only Germany and China, exports and imports together. And China was Thus, Germany's most important trading partner in 2022 for the seventh time in a row with imports into Germany worth 192 billion euros. So that's an extremely large amount. So can you explain what the Golden Week is and why it is so important to keep these dates in mind when trading with China? Sure. So looking a bit at the Golden Weeks, and originally, actually, we talked about the Golden Weeks because um, it's dating back to 1999 when the Chinese government said we want to boost the local economy by encouraging tourism, encouraging consumption. And that's why the government at that time introduced uh, holiday weeks. So the golden weeks, originally there were three weeks in the Chinese year. The one is the first day of May, which is the labor holidays, which was abandoned actually in 2008. So we don't have the golden week in May anymore. But two are remainings. The first one in the first half of the year, which is well known to everybody, that is basically Chinese New Year. And the second one, as you said, is now starting on the 1st of October. It's going back to the foundation of the People's Republic of China, which was in 1949. And so the entire country will shut down for seven days, which is normally the period from October 1st to October 7th. So meaning that looking at the objective of the government, enhancing local tourism and consumption. And if you know China as a huge country, normally people will take off certain days before or after the golden weeks. So the entire country will come to a standstill, let's say for 10 to 14 days, which is definitely then also reflected in uh, activities of manufacturing footprints. Your suppliers will most likely shut down. There's a lot of backlog when you look at the harbors. So the containers will not be shipped out. So there is a tremendous impact on global supply chains, especially as the entire country, as I said, will shut down for 10 to 14 days. That's a quite long time. And as you said, it's similar to the Chinese New Year. 
So in your opinion, how can companies then best prepare for this or for these golden weeks? And what would you recommend when everything stands still, the plants are closed, people are traveling throughout China and within China? At the moment, I have to say, uh, Sin, that's an excellent question, but also we are in a bit more more comfortable situation post-COVID and from a supply chain, at least. How should companies be prepared? Normally, when we look at our clients, knowing that especially mid of September and October are the peak seasons for logistics and transportation. Why is that? Because we have huge events overseas which are coming on. We have Black Friday, for example, we have Cyber Monday, we have the Christmas business. And one thing which we really learned about during the pandemic, and this is a lot of when you look at logistics, it's not anymore just on time. So a lot of companies now pre-investing also to build up certain security stocks if there's any disruption to the global supply chain. Having said that, at the moment and looking at China as a total, Unfortunately, we are in a situation that the Chinese economy is not recovering as fast as we were predicting. So everybody had in mind that after the opening in December, that the Chinese economy will have a very fast pickup of the economic development and then also basically of factory production. This at the moment is unfortunately not the case, which is at least short term helping a bit when it comes to capacities of suppliers also having the possibility that they can ship more orders. But nevertheless, the harbors, the custom duty, or even the custom activities, they're strongly affected by the golden week. So having some advice to companies which are procuring a lot in China is definitely, you have to be well aware of these holidays. So you should plan your logistics well in advance so most of the companies should book already their shipping capacities in August that you already ship out goods well a week ahead of the golden week. You should have a look at how can you make sure that surcharges which are normally added in the peak period especially during golden weeks that you negotiate this kind of surcharges already well in advance with your freight forwarder. Another topic when we look Sea freight and air freight. Air freight is actually even getting a bit more crucial as also there's a huge demand with all the tourism, which is picking up again. So capacities are still on a lower side. So you also need to look into your air freight capacities to really also here book well in advance. So coming back to have this full transparency on your supply chain, knowing what is the crucial timeline and then doing a pre-planning to say, what do we need to book in September already that everything is shipped out either before September, end of September, before the Golden Week, or shortly after. This is what majority of our clients would do. And Singer would like to come back to one of the comments you made on how important China is for the German trade. And absolutely right. So China was in the seventh consecutive year, the biggest trading partner of Germany. And putting this a bit in perspective, I said the golden weeks were introduced in 1999. When you look at the total export at that time, it was roughly 250 billion US dollar. When we look nowadays into the total export, we talk about 3,700 billion US dollar. So it's a 12 fold increase in the last two decades. And this is also showing how important for the global supply chain China became. And I think it's still. It is still, and also looking and 
how are companies at the moment trading China when it comes to supply? I mean, we learned it. The first initiatives definitely came with the Trump administration, where exports out of China were scrutinized. So a lot of Chinese companies already started to relocate manufacturing capacities to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, especially to work around the tariffs, which were introduced by the U.S. government. On the other hand side, we also learned during COVID that suddenly the shutdown of the Chinese factories in 2020 had huge impact on the global supply chain. And this is why our clients in the meantime call it decoupling or call it de-risking. But a lot of companies are starting to build up new supplier hubs around the globe. However, and I think that's important topic as well, that still in a lot of these pre or components of commodities, China is still the elephant in the room. And it's very difficult to de-risk your supply chain from China because they are just dominating the world market for certain commodities. And then even for some of the raw materials, when you look into the entire value chain of the products, which are then manufactured in China. Hmm. That's true. So you just mentioned decoupling from China, de-risking. There's a lot of things going on in terms of new strategy that companies are looking for, like moving from the so-called offshoring production to nearshoring. And you also said that Chinese companies itself are moving to other countries in terms of manufacturing and to save money, to reduce the supply chain risk. So what is, in your opinion, what has you seen in the past few months and years? Like, how does China view the strategy for its own country? And how has China dealt with supply chain bottlenecks on its own? And what was the strategy China took that also Western companies may can take for themselves? When we, from, let's say, a European or a German perspective, we talk about de-risking now, which is highlighted also in the China strategy of the government, which in China was recognized. But on the other hand side, also China did not criticize it too much, or at least not in a way that we were expecting. Nevertheless, there was a lot of feedback on the new China strategy of the German government and the Chinese government said we should more look on what is where we have more consensus than always looking on basically saying what is not running well. However, China is also working on a big part on de-risking strategies. When Xi Jinping came with the two economies or the two circles of economies, that's basically nothing else than de-risking because we said we have an inner circle, which is basically the Chinese ecosystem, and we have an external circle. And the Chinese companies are focusing strongly also on how can they build up their supply chain more resilient, meaning also decreasing dependency from imports. And by doing so, and this is also what we see in a lot of clients, we actually have in the moment a kind of a push of our international clients to even localize more manufacturing in China. Because also when looking at Chinese customers, being it manufacturing entities or the consumers, it's just not ex expected anymore. It's just not accepted anymore that a lot of the components or let's say high-tech products are still imported. So this is also why now China is building even more up innovative and high-tech manufacturing. On the other hand side, and that is what is China also doing, they really go overseas. 
And we see that not only in Southeast Asia, but we also see it in Europe. We see it in North America. We see it in Mexico, where a lot of the larger, let's say, Chinese companies are setting now up manufacturing entities to supply into North America, into the U.S. And when you look at, for example, also on the big battery e-vehicle providers, they are starting to set up manufacturing site in Europe because, and I mean, that's kind of a geopolitical tendency as well, that our customers are looking at the globe more from a deglobalization issue, actually, or uh, and you look at three big platforms. One is the European platform. Then you have the North America and South America platform, and you have a platform in Asia. And this is also how supply chains are designed. However, and uh, I mean, we saw it also in the press, there are certain topics like rare earths, which is needed in a lot of, let's say, high-tech applications. Here, we still have a very high dependency on China, being it on the mining, but also on the processing of rare earths. And here, we cannot really see that these decoupling trends are having significant results yet, but definitely, and we see that also from the European Union, they are all working on strategies to also build here up resources for rare earths, for example. So you mentioned three platforms or three different regions, European region, North America, South America, and then Asia Pacific. If China is also looking on these three different regions and build their supply chain in that way, so would you also say that the European or Western companies also should look at that way or the government to build up, like, produce their products only for the European market and then for the U.S. market and the other one for the Chinese market? Because there are some companies who are saying, okay, we are slowly moving away from China, but still as China is a huge market for us, we still keep the production there to serve the Chinese market and the Chinese consumers. Absolutely. And China has huge potential and we still see a lot of opportunity despite the current, let's say, economic problems we are facing and challenges, especially in the property market. The use and unemployment is above 20% at the moment. We also see that the consumer spending is not picking up. And again, looking at trade and export actually felt in July, this month by 14%, which is the sharpest decline since the hit of Corona in February 2020. So these are all topics which are really impacting, let's say, how we are working together with China from a trading perspective. However, we have a lot of clients and they see also the opportunity from the market. And having a setup in China is mainly focusing at the moment China for China. So having the concept of we are using China as a prolonged workbench and then exporting it around the globe. I think that's a concept which is, let's say, by a lot of parameters we normally look into. That's a kind of a, yeah, I would say a bit of dated approach and how to handle China. So it's really more about China for China, using the opportunities in the market and not using China as a prolonged workbench. And this is why also European customers, but also Chinese customers are more and more looking in this regional approach and setting up, let's call it their micro supply chains, that you are really capable and able to have your operations running. If you look at the local or domestic supply chain, being it in North America, being it in Europe, or then Asia also as a separate region. 
However, and here I'm coming back to the point I made previously, for some of the topic, it's still extremely difficult to fully de-risk your supply chain and building here up more resilient approaches. But we also see here a lot of our majority of our clients, everybody is working on second sources. Everybody is looking to decrease dependency, not only from China, but always when there's a single market involved. So looking really to have a diversified and a more risk resilient setup globally, that's I think where the Chinese are working on, but also where all our European clients are working on. Hmm, that makes sense. While we're talking about risk resilient supply chain, which is a very hot and important topic. But on the other hand, there's also, let's say the keyword of sustainability. That topic is super important, not only for Western companies, but also for China itself, if you want to protect the environment. So if we talk about that topic a little bit, with the goods manufactured in China and will still be in the future, um, which are often having to be shipped halfway around the world to their final destination, the question of sustainability and reducing emissions come into play. So what, in your opinion, are the companies doing to help meet their carbon and other sustainable commitments if they still produce in China and cannot move their production away from China closer to their final destination. Having a sustainable supply chain and looking at the CO2 footprint is for all of our clients on the top agenda. So always when we do a kind of a China sourcing approach, when we look at alternative sourcing around the world, there's always the question, what will this mean for my CO2 footprint? And we do have clients at the moment which are really relocating certain parts of the supply chain away from Asia, uh, more onshoring them to reduce CO2 footprint. That's, I would say, in all of our projects, a big part of the consideration. Unfortunately, being sustainable and CO2 neutral is also coming at a cost. And we are living in an environment we have the war in the Ukraine, we have extreme high inflations, we have interest rates which are skyrocketing around the world. Um, so the consumers are having less and less money to spend, unfortunately. And this is then also reflected again in the consideration of sustainability. And unfortunately, here, especially now when you look at the Christmas season coming up and all the consumer goods which are purchased in China, I think there's a short-term effect here where the sustainability is at the moment a kind of deprioritized just to be able to provide goods which are still affordable despite all the inflation pressure which we are seeing. So at the moment, unfortunately, I see a kind of a deprioritization of this topic, but mid and long-term, definitely all of our clients and we see this trend, everybody is working on that. So you say they deprioritized sustainability in favor of cost and return on investment. So um, in the longer term, wouldn't it make more sense to invest in sustainability in order to both reduce environmental impact cost and satisfy customer demand? Absolutely. I think it's a very short-term effect, which I just explained, but in the mid and long term, there's a lot of push and especially also from the Chinese government. So having all the sustainability targets in place. There is no way around it, being it emissions in productions, looking at water treatment, all these topics are really highly enforced for Chinese manufacturers. 
The only thing which we are seeing at the moment, because especially 2019 before COVID, there was so much pressure on the companies to fulfill all the government regulations. And the government is still shutting down dirty mm -hmm. manufacturing sites. But nowadays also we see that the pressure of this pressure cooker is released a bit to just also make sure that the economy is picking up again. However, it doesn't mean that any, let's say, dirty manufacturing processes will be approved. It's just a kind of a bit of relaxation when it comes to enforcement of already cleaned up manufacturing processes. So, but the long-term, as you said, also definitely being sustainable, looking into CO2 footprints, how you manufacture, this is a big target of the Chinese government. And one of the nice announcements, which came out actually also just two weeks ago, when you look at the air pollution in Beijing, we have clean air again. And this was one of the promises of Xi Jinping as well, that he wants to have clean air and blue skies in Beijing. And when you look at that, um, seems we have achieved that. So there's no way around the long-term target of the Chinese government. And you have seen also the huge impact of flooding in Beijing recently. And here also, this is putting even more pressure on the government to look into climate change, to work on the targets, which we are having. So long-term sustainability is on the top agenda for the Chinese government and also all the foreign brands which are producing okay. in China. So this is an upcoming regulation which is coming, or do you say the government will... Um... We have so many regulations <laughs> and laws which are, which are in place, and they are stricter in most of the areas. They are, in the meantime, stricter than a mm -hmm. lot of the European laws. And when you look, for example, on wastewater treatment, when you look on pollutants which can be added into wastewater, so we have here regulations which are way beyond the EU regulations. So this is here to stay and the regulations and the laws are in place already. Will there be even stricter laws in China? At the moment, I would say we reached a level which is very strict already on a global scale as well. Or if you benchmark it with legislation in other countries, so I don't think it will be becoming more strict. But definitely also the government will work on more sustainability targets, being it renewable energy, being it the push mm -hmm. to e-vehicles. And this is also something which was announced two weeks ago again, is that e-vehicle purchasing will be incentivized by the Chinese government. So pushing here towards a green society in the next 20 to 30 years, it's definitely one of the main objectives of the government. Yeah, that's great to hear. Regarding what you said, how is China dealing with sustainability in terms of all this trade conflicts that China has now with different countries? So I don't think that the trade conflicts which we are seeing at the moment have a big impact on the sustainability targets of China, because what the Chinese government realized is that they are also benefiting the most from reaching this green transformation of their country and the industry. Um, looking at, you still have a population of 1.3 billion. You need to have food security, you need to have air pollution security, or you have to reduce the pollution levels, which we have seen many years ago. And basically also, this is a strong motivator for the Chinese government to not move away from their sustainability targets, but to stick to them despite all the trade conflicts mm. which we are having. Right. So we have talked now about the strategy, possible solutions, and also sustainability. 
how or what do you think Western countries could learn from China and vice versa? Not just in terms of navigating through the supply chain bottlenecks regarding the golden week, but in general. I think it's a difficult topic and also a political topic. What should nations learn from each other or where can we benefit from each other? And this is also what was the feedback from the Chinese government towards the new China strategy of the German government. They said we should not focus so much on the areas where we have a disagreement, but more focus on the areas where we see yeah. certain concerns. So looking a bit from an outside perspective, and as I said, I lived in China the last 20 years and moved back to Europe one year ago. And this is now, let's say, not on a very highly sophisticated assessment, but just from a personal observation, which I had now in the last 12 months. When you look at a lot of the European countries, definitely what we see is uh, where we are, in my opinion, lacking behind is mm -hmm. the digitalization, the digitalization on all areas of life, being it on manufacturing side, being it in logistic transparency, being it in your personal life, it starts with online payments or payments via your mobile phone and how good are they accepted it's in healthcare system, how digital the European healthcare system is already. I think here we can learn a lot from China. And there are some examples where I would say that benefiting for European and also for Chinese companies is when we put the strengths of both of the countries or regions together, I think there's a great opportunity for both. And I just had a client and he said also that they worked here strongly together with the Chinese daughter company in the development of new products. And just by combining the expertise of the German engineering and the speed of the Chinese organization, the company was able to reduce the time to market from 18 months to six months, which is tremendous. And here really they said, what helped us, it was the way on how the German engineers work together with the local team. It was China's speed, which helped being really here available 24 seven and putting all the efforts into the development of new products. It's also the ecosystem in China where you, for example, when we talk about tooling for machines, you get them within mm -hmm. a few weeks, not within a year, like in Europe. So these are topics where I think we both can learn something by closer cooperation and using the strengths of each of the countries. Yeah, that's great. If that would be also possible in the future for other companies to learn from each other like this. Uwe, as we're nearing the end of our podcast, we love to hear from you what the future of supply chain will look like, in your opinion. I think the future of supply chain will look more regional. What I mentioned before, I think we entered an area of de-globalization, which is here to stay. Today, we have a very important meeting in South Africa where we have the BRICS countries to meet. And a lot of the press records, which you saw today is also, is this the start of a new global alliance or strengthening of this existing global alliance with Russia, India, China, and here also, I think this we lead that our customers will really look more on a regional approach to supply chains, that dependencies from certain regions will decrease or the aim is to decrease these dependencies and that we really, as I've mentioned also, that you have more clusters around the globe 
and you have this micro supply chains which will be built up. I think this is how the future of supply chain in the coming years will look like. Great insights. Uwe, thanks a lot for this great conversation and also all your insights that you shared. And thank you all for listening. Please mark us as a favorite and you can get regular updates and information about future episodes. Until next time from Uwe and I, thank you for discussing the future of supply chain.